All right, so let's get started. I'm imagining our listenership right now are people who are sort of, you know, interested in what's going on at SFU, have not had the chance to meet you, want to get to know you better. So what I'm going to start with is, oh, I'm going to start by saying who I am. Hi, everybody. I'm Hannah McGregor. (laughs) I'm an assistant professor in the soon-to-be school of publishing. Um, And I'm a podcast, which is what I'm here doing. And I'm going to read your official bio. And then what I want you to tell me is like three things about you that are not in this official bio. Are they supposed to be like academic things or like No, absolutely not. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Amber Moore. Yes. Dr. Amber Moore. (laughs) Hello. Yes. You are a Banting Postdoctoral Fellow here at SFU. I say pointing in my apartment because where is here at SFU in a pandemic? Hard to say. You're in the Faculty of Education. Yes. And you have beautifully wide-ranging research interests. Thank you. But your postdoctoral work is looking particularly at fan fiction, rape culture, Mm -hmm. um, and, and YA. So... Fan fiction rewritings of scenes of sexual violence in YA. You've got it. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of exciting stuff oh, folded in you. there that I am that I am looking forward to unpacking. Mm-hmm. But okay, that's the very like, hello, I'm an academic. Yeah, a, per- a personality. No, no, <laughs> just just research interests yeah. for me. So tell me a couple of other things about yourself that don't show up in your official your official bio? Oh, sure. Um, well, I mean, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind, something very exciting that has happened to me recently is my partner mm-hmm. and I got a puppy. Um, <gasps> oh, yes. And she, so she's currently sleeping in the farthest corner I could find from where I'm currently <laughs> recording this <laughs> with a Kong full of treats. I'm hopeful she will Incredible. like enjoy her treat and then sleep and not interrupt us. But she's very mm-hmm. sweet. Her name is Ruby and she's just 12 weeks old. So Ruby. we just, we, my partner and I, we joke that we bought ourselves uh, like a little um, uh, therapy dog, <laughs> like a little lab because <laughs> we got a little golden lab. So that's like the big thing going Aww. on in my life yep. right now. She's so sweet. That's incredible. How long have you had her? Uh, just a couple, like three weeks now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she's just a baby. How is your sleep going? You know something? So I'm very proactive. And what we've done is she's sleeping through the night, but I wake her up at 3 a.m. to go out to the washroom. And it's been, mm. she's a good little sleeper. So I'm very yeah. lucky. And I have her on a pretty tight nap schedule. Like I'm such a teacher. Like I keep her to like a bell schedule. I have her on a pretty tight nap schedule. <laughs> wow, that is cute. I, this actually says a lot about my personality. Very like kind of sometimes I can be very rigid in my organization, but it gives me a sense of calm. So yeah. Mm. So she's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so even as I'm on sort of like I'm doing a lot, like all research right now. And like I was saying to you before, I'm on like almost a break from teaching. I'm like mm-hmm. the pedagogy is happening with the puppy because I have to teach her all yeah. these things. And I'm learning how to teach a puppy things it's very hard (laughs) that's yeah that's delightful though I love that you were experimenting with this new interspecies pedagogy exactly exactly (laughs) exactly I hope I come out on the other side okay yeah yeah I mean worst case scenario she doesn't keep to her naps yeah (laughs) 
And I mean, would that be so bad? I don't think so. The alternative is like cuddles and just like lots of spoiling her with treats. So that's pretty good. Yeah. 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 The stakes are pretty low. Yeah. Um, yeah. And other things. Well, she keeps me company while I, I love to cook. And I found, especially mm-hmm. during the pandemic, that cooking and like making really lovely meals for myself and my partner has been like a really joyful thing. So I love mm. spending time in my kitchen and like listening to an audiobook or a podcast, of course, and just like lovingly preparing things and having, you know, Ruby by my ankles. It's been pretty lovely. Yeah. yeah. What's the last delicious thing that you made? The last delicious thing that I made. Ooh. Um, uh, what did I make? Well, last night I made this really cool, I, I'm vegetarian, so I made like a soba noodle salad with uh, turmeric, carrot, and coconut dressing. It's uh, The recipe is by Anna Jones, who's this recipe developer in the UK, and she's vegetarian. Anyway, it was really delicious and had grapefruit in it and edamame, and it was just like refreshing, and it almost tasted like summer in February, so it was Amazing. pretty great, yeah. <laughs> I also love what an academic that you immediately cite yourself. I know! <laughs> Like, you know, I learned, you know, you know, citation is feminist practice. Like I know my Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sarah Ahmed, Mm -hmm. I've, I've learned my lessons. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, um, I do love Anna Jones's vegetarian stuff. So that's been a joy. Yeah. Puppies and cooking. I mean, what's better? Puppies and cooking. This sounds really cozy. Yeah. It's been really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And so you are currently not teaching and we were talking a little bit before we hit record about how sort of odd that is as an experience as somebody who is a teacher so you were a teacher before you were an academic yeah I was a high school English teacher for six years in um Mm -hmm. just a small city outside of Calgary Alberta I'm originally from Ontario actually and then like as soon as I got my teaching certificate my partner got into medical school in in Calgary and at the time there were no teaching jobs in Ontario so we just Went to Alberta, I got a job miraculously immediately, and I stayed at the same Mm -hmm. wonderful school for six years. And I just, it's interesting because I'm coming up on my sixth year in academia, and I'm starting to get Mm -hmm. to the point where I'm going to like pass myself as a te- like a high school teacher and become yeah. more do you know what I mean and that's a bit of yeah. a funny feeling I, I feel like almost like I don't know it's just a little unsettling but also exciting I guess um yeah. I mean I've, I've managed to keep teaching I, I've been teaching at uh in at UBC in the teacher education program for several years mm-hmm. and that's been a wonderful experience and I'll be doing some teaching at SFU this summer but um, yeah, it's weird to be on a break because teaching is the thing that really is my passion. And it's what I, you know, in the world of academia, I don't always feel very, um, you know, <laughs> confident, I guess, for lack of a better oh, word. You know what I, mean? I was like, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> no, what the end of that sentence I, is going to be. I just feel like such yeah. a novice and, but it's a, it's a good thing to feel that way, it, mm. you know, cause there's so much learning to happen, but I guess teaching is where I feel very like secure, and so, mm. yeah, I'll be excited to get back into the classroom in a few months. And I'm doing a little bit of guest lecturing here and there. So that's always lovely to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to be teaching? So my supervisor at SFU, Dr. Elizabeth Marshall, who's fabulous, she's teaching a wonderful course this summer. And I'm going to be doing a couple guest lecture lessons on actually centered around a young adult sexual assault novel called Speak mm-hmm. by Lawyer Hulse Anderson which I've written about a ton. I actually taught every year. I was a high school English teacher. And so I'm going to be teaching a little bit about the graphic novel version of that text. Um, And so that should be exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. So I'm really interested in this sort of move that you made from being a teacher to teaching teachers. Yeah. 
which does seem very meta to be like, okay, I'm a teacher and I'm thinking about feminist pedagogy and now I'm going to become somebody who teaches teachers to teach with feminist pedagogy (laughs) that like that. So so what was that move like to go from teaching students to teaching teachers? Oh, I love that question because that's something I really wrangled with a number of years ago when I started. So I actually, I have to admit when I first was like, okay, I'm going to start doing teacher education. I know how to be a teacher. I can like convey that I can help. And I was, I almost went in kind of arrogantly or, and I shouldn't say arrogantly, but maybe just, I was excited. But what I realized is it's so, it feels so different. It's such different energy working with adults than with like teenagers. And it's wonderful Mm -hmm. energy. It's just so different. And I think the biggest thing that I noticed is that like my sort of like ethic of care was a little bit different because when I worked with Mm. teenagers, you're, um, you're much more involved in their like overall wellness. You know what I mean? As like their Mm. teacher that you see every day and they're, you know, um, they're depending on you in different ways. And then in teacher education, it moves into more like a mentorship, very friendly, like just sort of like a different, wonderful energy. So, Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't expect how different it would feel, but it was, they're both wonderful, just in very, you know, unique ways, I would say. (laughs) And I love working with people who want to be teachers are like the best people on the planet. Like they're so excited and passionate and like, it makes me excited for all the future students that they're going to have. Like, it just makes me filled with, you know, I hope, yeah, I hate. I, I, <laughs> that sounds really cheesy, but it's like, true. What is it like being this positive? This is wild. Yeah, no, but it is. It's really exciting, and especially like I actually taught. I, I've taught a couple courses during this pandemic to teacher educators, mm. including it would have been the fall of 2020. Um, where everything was on Zoom and like learning how to be a teacher on Zoom is really hard. Mm. And like, I think Mm -hmm. about, I I often reflect on that group of teachers who are now out working and thinking about just how remarkable they were that they sort of got their teacher education um, degree in that really difficult year when everyone was sort of being like, how do we teach online all of a sudden? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was really remarkable to witness. And so teaching just excites me, obviously. (laughs) I'd love to sort of dig down a little bit more into this sort of question of the ethic of care and Mm. how that plays out differently in a high school classroom than in a university classroom. And so teacher education, those are graduate students or is it a certificate? So it's like, yeah, it's, you get your own specific degree. Like you get your bachelor of education. So you typically it's people who get it after they've done an undergraduate degree. Sometimes they also have a master's degree in tow. Sometimes it's folks who have had another career or two first, and then they're coming back Mm -hmm. to be teachers. But typically I found the makeup of my classes was folks who were like me back in my early 20s getting my teaching degree. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they're just sort of fresh out of university and full of, you know, all these like wonderful ideas and they just want to have a place to share them with young people. So that's sort of the context. So excited and enthusiastic, but also a self-selected group Mm -hmm. who have like opted into this form of education, which always brings a particular kind of engagement and and energy. That is different from a high school classroom, yeah. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But I, w- I would love, I have never taught in a high school. I've never taught You'd be such a hit. They would love uh, you. <laughs> like you would be the favorite. You would be like the teacher giving the valedictorian speech, like hundred <laughs> percent. I don't know. I talked to my, I have a number of close friends who are high school teachers and oh, nice. I don't know if I have what it takes. Oh, you to, do. 
sure, I'll drop in your high school. I'll, <laughs> I'll come in yeah. and be like, hey, kids, what, what, bye. But like the attention to what's going on in your student li- students' lives and to their well-being mm-hmm. and the sense that you are often like a key adult touch point for them yeah. while also having to navigate like very clear rules around how to treat minors. Like it seems complex. Yeah, absolutely. It is for sure. It's just like everything is heightened almost. Um, mm-hmm. I would say definitely when I'm teaching and teacher education courses with adults, you're just sort of relaxed because you're talking to peers. I, I, I always say like, I'm talking to you as colleagues because you are your teachers, you're here, like you're my colleague, I'm going to talk to you like I would in like the staff room and just try to share my expertise. But when you're working yeah. with adolescents, like, you know, they do look to you for a lot more, they, like they, they want a lot more for you. And obviously a lot more is going on. And I think particularly if you're an English teacher, it's a space where stories are shared all the time. Right. And so mm. they're telling you, you know, they're writing these really personal stories and sharing them with you and dialoguing with you and one another and in different ways. It's just like a different kind of intimacy. Um, I do love teenagers though. I actually think they're like the best people on earth. They're so, I I don't want to make like broad strokes, but like they're very open and you know, there's almost like no filter and they'll tell you all about like there's rascal things they did on the weekend. Like I, oh, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like about sneaking out and like, they tell you the best stories. Like I'm the one, the thing I miss the most about high school teaching is I would always have the best stories to go home to the dinner table with. I'd be like, guess Mm. what? Like Stacy said today, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it is exhausting in a different way for sure. Like every teenager is a little bit of a dirt bag. And I, (laughs) yeah, I resonate as a little bit of a dirt bag myself. I resonate very strongly with that. Yeah. And you have to let them and nurture the dirt bag. You have to like let them. That's the other thing about being a high school teacher is you want to create that, hopefully that space or be that kind of person where it's like, look, you can be that version of yourself with me and I can hold that for you. Like, you know what I mean? So there's that sort of different kind of demand of emotional labor, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just writing this down because the title for this interview is going to be Nurture the Dirt Bag. Oh my God. That's Um, the best thing ever. Just going to write that when you said it. Okay, so let's. I I read all of the articles that you oh, sent me. Oh no, they were, they I'm were so all, sorry. They were all really great. Why would you apologize? <laughs> I feel like I sent Don't. you homework. I am such a teacher. After I hit no. send, I was like, I shouldn't have done that. But I meant for it just to be like, just in case you want to like read the abstracts and get a sense of who I am. But I'm going to tell you're you so something lovely. that uh, Dr. Jade Ferguson, who is one of the most important mentors in my scholarly career, said to me once, yeah. which is. Never apologize for your work. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, I'm going to hold on to that. Thank your you. Your work is is a gift Thank that you are you. giving to people. Oh. And you shouldn't apologize to people that they engage with your work. Oh, that's you such a nice way of put framing a lot it. Of, Thank you. Put a lot of care and love into that You're work. You're right. Instead of apologizing, I should appreciate. That's something I've always yeah. had to remind myself. So I really appreciate you taking the time to read that work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank and you. I, would like to talk about the question of building safe spaces. Oh, yeah. That's a hard one. Yeah, because the way that you just phrased that, right, that you want to hold space for your students immediately made me think of that article. And we're going to have links to all of these articles. Oh, thank you. So that people will know what we're referencing. (laughs) Thank you. But it immediately made me think of that, that piece, which is includes a series of interviews with other high school teachers mm-hmm. thinking about 
what it means for them to sort of create spaces of safety and really problematizing the whole question of like what it means for a classroom to be safe. Yeah. So can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, like for what, sure. Where is the pressure coming from on this concept of safety in the classroom? Well, that's great. Uh, so what I can give you some context to that article that emerges from my dissertation research. And so I did that research with teacher candidates. And what I had them do was um, I invited them to read a series of sexual assault narratives and then just respond and see if they would, you know, have a sense of readiness and willingness to maybe do teach those kinds of stories in the high school English. And when that happened, a lot of them started talking about wanting to cultivate safe space and create safe space in the classroom. And alongside that, a lot of them wonderfully like critiqued that notion because, you know, and I've learned a lot, especially from, you know, scholars like Bell Hooks, for example, who talks about how like, you know, we really have to be careful when we talk about safe classrooms because are they even possible, right? Mm. You know, violence can happen in a classroom no matter how hard you're trying to create a safe space. I mean, that's something I've certainly experienced and it's, you know, those sinking moments where you're like, I'm trying to do everything I can to create a welcoming invitational community with my students and yet, you know, violence can always slip in. Um, And so I think what I try to do is try to aim. I, I always strive for safe, for space in the classroom, but always know that it's not wholly possible. It's almost like how I feel about rape culture. It's like, I know almost, I hate to say it, that we can't eradicate it, but you nevertheless try, try to, like you pursue that goal. So it's kind of similar for me almost. I had a conversation with my friend, Zena Sharman. Yes. uh, Brilliant writer, thinker, organizer about abolitionist thinking and what it means to bring abolitionist thinking into the institutions that you are working Mm -hmm. in. And the main context in which I think a lot of us have been thinking about abolition is abolishing the police. Yes. And the difference between abolitionist thinking, which says our end goal is for there to be no police. Mm -hmm. And so any decision that we make in the meantime, any action that we take, is moving towards that goal, even if we don't actually believe that goal Mm -hmm. will happen in our lifetimes. We are working towards abolishing the police and and building up the infrastructures and the other possibilities Mm -hmm. that will make that, that will make that more thinkable, more possible. And it's a really different headspace than reform Mm -hmm. because reform says, I want this institution to keep existing, but I want to, but I want to fix the problems in it. And I've been thinking about that a lot as somebody working in a university. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, am I a reformist or am I an abolitionist? Oh, that's a really like, great question. Yeah. Do I think we can reform this very broken institution or do I actually think this institution is so fundamentally entwined mm. with colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, yeah. patriarchy, that actually the long-term goal would be to abolish it. Yeah. And to have a totally different sense of how it is that we learn and study. And that doesn't mean I'm going to burn down the university tomorrow, but it means (laughs) that I'm making different, different decisions, right? That I'm thinking differently in relation to it. And that the way that you're articulating sort of the goal is the safe space. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining in that direction. Even if I don't think it's possible now or ever, I'm... That needs to be the thing that I am working towards because that will 
make me bolder in terms of the decisions that I make. Yeah. And always even problematizing, like what I think of as safe might not be safe for all my students and just always Mm -hmm. being really mindful that I have a very different perhaps idea of what a welcoming classroom feels like than some of my Mm -hmm. students and always doing that reflect critical reflection too and self-examination. But what you just said reminded me, I recently read so I've, I've been feeling the same way as you about the university, sort of having this, I even just like did a project with a friend of mine, Dr. K. Hare, where we were sort of thinking about ourselves as emerging feminist academics, but also having this like cruel, optimistic feeling about the university. Mm. Um, but mm-hmm. I recently read, and I'm sure I have a feeling you've probably read it as well, Sarah Ahmed's Complaint. Mm-hmm. Um, her new, like her newer book, yeah. new, newest book. I think so. Um, is it her newest? Yeah. Is it that or the use one? I've read them back to the back. Use? So I forget which one they came, came out so close together. She's so and productive. let's just say <laughs> she's just writing an amazing number of books. It's incredible. So, uh, and I will read all of them again and again and revisit it. But I think it was yeah. in complaint where there's a part that I held on to when I was reading it. And I always keep, I keep like a commonplace book when I read and I remember, like I can picture it that it was, I bolded it and it was in pink because I wanted to remember. And there's this Mm -hmm. part where she talks about how she's doing this work because she wants to make the university better and that she does, I'm terribly paraphrasing her, but she talks about essentially how she definitely believes in the university and that it can Mm -hmm. be, there can be interventions and we can make it what we need it to be. And that gave me, I, I think it's, it steadied me a little bit. I needed to read mm. that. Yeah. So that gives me hope. Yeah. And the, the piece of me that, you know, when I start thinking that, like, do I want to abolish this? Yeah. I remember a conversation I had actually with the aforementioned Dr. Ferguson. Mm-hmm. There was a symposium that happened that was about, you know, the future of Canadian literary scholarship mm. in particular. Mm-hmm. And sort of what, you know, what's to come of it in the midst of this sort of employment crisis, right? right? And Jade was saying that a lot of the white scholars there were saying, well, the university is basically done. Yeah. Like, the university as an institution is basically over. This is not. Yeah. You know, we've, we've got to stop attaching ourselves to it. And she was like, you know, it's an interesting trend that the second black people start to get access to oh. the thing, that thing is done. Wow. And that, yeah, I keep thinking about that. And since then, mm-hmm. it's a trend that I've noticed in so many contexts. Like the moment that post-structuralists declared the death of the author, mm. which was a bunch of white men declaring the death of the author, was like remarkably historically close to the moment when like women and people of color started to <laughs> get to lay claim to the identity of being an author. Yeah. And then all of these French guys were like, the author is dead. <laughs> Yeah. Or like people say this about podcasting all the time. Oh, like, oh, yeah? we've reached we've reached peak podcast. Oh, everybody that's and their no. everybody and their dog has a podcast is the joke. Oh, that's terrible. And it's like by everybody and their dog, you mean women and people of color? hundred percent. Yeah, it's so coded. It's so coded, yeah. right? And so Sorry, this has just turned into me working no, I love my it. personal no. relationship to the abolition of the universe. I love it. <laughs> I loved I love to hear I have not read the complaint book in its entirety yet. So I'm going to go yeah. back and think about what Sarah Ahmed has to say about our relationship to the institution. Yeah. It might have been What's the Use? I'm afraid now, but it's one of those two books, I promise. Oh, my God. You know what? Yeah. I got a sabbatical coming up. I'll there you go. <laughs> 
But with respect to abolition, yeah. someone I've really learned a lot from is Bettina Love. I don't know if you've come across her work. So she's specifically yeah. in education. And so think just, you know, you're sort of talking about abolition has made me think about specifically in the context of education, which is sort of like the context I care the most about. I do believe in abolishing police out of schools. I'd like to be clear about that. Um, and, you know, I did work in a high school where we did have like an officer. He was lovely, I must say. But, you know, that presence was there. And, you know, my sense that he he was lovely was maybe not shared by all the kids right so well and also the loveliness of that officer is in part about teaching students mm -hmm. to have a particular relationship to the police yes exactly yeah. and so it's just it, as far as abolition in schools goes I do I do believe police shouldn't have a place in school shouldn't there shouldn't yeah. be any officers in the hallways and Bettina Love yeah. talks about how especially for like black kids like it can lead to like spirit murder and you know it's just it's not a good thing, yeah. but I am on it generally an abolition journey, I would say. Like I'm mm -hmm. for it, but then there's the part of me that's like the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, like rot and like just rot, like, you know what I mean? So I, I struggle. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a that's an internal complexity yeah. that will always exist within yeah. abolitionist thinking, Yeah, I think. So I just have to know? keep educating myself and keep yeah. reading, yeah. <laughs> always the answer, right? <laughs> yeah, it's always the answer. It's always the answer. And just allowing for the fact that there will always be complexity and that sometimes we will hold two or more conflicting feelings yeah. or stances inside of us and that that is just the human condition, you know? Yes, I've been trying yeah. to embrace that more. Like that just sort of being a little bit more gentle with myself, being like, I can hold yeah. both these things and negotiate over time. And <laughs> Absolutely. Your point about abolishing police presence in universities made me think about a sort of, I'm trying to figure out which fights to fight in the university because mm -hmm. I end up just wanting to fight everything. Mm -hmm. And that is I know. a scattered bad use of, mm -hmm. of energies but I've been thinking a lot lately about our approach to mental health mm. within the university yeah and it was in fact Zena Sharman who pointed out to me how carceral the current logics of mental health within the university yeah. are yeah. because they are organized around ensuring that the university bears as little legal liability as possible. Mm, and mm -hmm. so any student who is sort of perceived as at risk in a way that might make the university legally liable yeah. is redirected to the police pretty much immediately. Yeah. And the official recommendations within the university are essentially to call wellness checks on your students. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which which we know is really bad, yeah. particularly for black and indigenous students. Yep. That that is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And that that is, you know, okay, here is a site of abolition. I think we can just yeah. get on board with. <laughs> yeah. Like, we've got to yeah. we've got to not have that be our policy yeah. for how to care for students. Totally agree. We have to find other ways. Yeah. And it's hard, but necessary. Like, it's just, yeah. So speaking of hard but necessary, let's talk about what it is like being a feminist scholar who talks about a thing that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's okay. Can I tell you what's wild is when mm -hmm. I first, so when I, I've been doing this kind of research for a long time, like maybe since 2010, like I did a master's where I focused on rape culture and then my PhD, but I started my PhD in 2016 
And then come 2017, the repopularization of Toronto Burke's Me Too movement, all of a sudden people were like, oh, that's why you're interested in this like weird, uncomfortable topic that nobody wants to address. And I was like, yeah. And so <laughs> like, it was, it was wild doing my, dis, you know, do, really sort of coming into my own as a researcher alongside the Me Too movement has been really oh interesting. Because all of a sudden, wow. folks who would sort of ask me about my research... And this is like pre-pandemic when I used to like go to places and talk to people, you know, Um, when they would ask me, you know, people would get kind of, you know, understandably a little deer in headlights and not really know how to, uh, how to discuss it. But now there's sort of this like discourse around it that people can pull from and dialogue with me about. So it's been really interesting, just anecdotally noticing how people differently speak to me about my work post 2017. Um, so that's been interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting because it's given people kind of, yeah, a vocabulary. Yes. And like like stories to draw from because, and I still get this a lot, but oftentimes people would often jump to like legal discourse. So they'd be, you know, they'd jump to the like, well, you know, how do you reckon with innocent till proven guilty? And he said, she said, you know, all the things that come out. And so, I, I find myself less and less having to be like, can we back away from like the legal talk and think more culturally about this? And, you know, yeah. So that's been really interesting to witness and participate yeah. in. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like that shift in how people are encountering your research, is that mirrored in how young people are thinking or writing or talking Mm. about rape culture? I think so. I feel a little like, you know, if by young people, you mean adolescents, I feel Mm. slightly more disconnected now that I'm not in the high school classroom every day. But I I always, rape culture is something I used to explicitly talk about and teach texts about as a high school teacher, like my entire career. And I found that young people were always more so than adults, very willing to talk about these issues and, you know, very interested and curious and they would dialogue. Um, and so I assume, cause I think young people are always ahead of the rest of us a little bit. They're always, uh-huh. we have so much to learn from them. Like they demand, whose book was I reading? Um, I wish I could remember so I could properly cite them, but I was reading something recently where a scholar was saying that, you know, young people, they ask for the things that we didn't know how to ask for. And it's really mm. inspiring to watch like them ask us to not use ableist language and to, you know, ask for accommodations and like all these things. And I mean, all you have to do is turn on TikTok and see the ways that they're educating the world about all these important 100%. issues like rape culture, right? It's exciting. Youth culture has so much richness to offer us and to teach us. And it is, for me, in part rooted in that dirtbaggery. Yeah. Right? In the sense of just being like, fuck you, I don't care. Yeah. If you think that I'm not allowed to talk about gender like this. If you think that I'm not allowed to think about my body like this or think about my sexuality like this. Like, whatever. I'm going to go smoke clove cigarettes in an alley. (laughs) Yeah. I don't care what you think. Yeah. And that, you know, takes different forms in different generations, sure. but it is beautifully like not even subversive because like subverting assumes that you are like embedded yeah. in the context. Mm-hmm. It's more just like, I don't even care. Yeah. Just like, and I, I love just don't that. care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really beautiful. So your new research is looking at 
adolescent fan fiction. Yes. And so I feel like I'm getting back to my roots a little bit. Maybe I should start by saying that I wasn't like a person immersed in fan fiction before this project. I feel that's that's important to say. I'm learning as I go. For instance, the first set of fan fiction texts that I explored was fan fiction written in response to a young adult rape novel called Speak by Laurie Hall Sanderson that I mentioned earlier. And this is a book I taught for six years and I know it really well. And it was incredible to be a former English teacher going online and reading all these fan fiction pieces about this book I used to teach. And what the first thing I noticed, I have to say, is that in so many of the stories, the largely adolescent creators were noting that they did this for English class. And so the first little piece, like the first little essay that I think I'm going to publish out of this project is something like a PSA to English teachers because students are actually taking their homework and then putting it in front of a new digital audience. Like they're so proud of the work they're doing. And so I feel like it's important for English teachers to know, like, you know, the texts you're bringing to them really do resonate and this one in particular. And so, yeah, so the first thing I did for the first few months was I spent a lot of time reading speak fan fiction and the ways in which largely, like I said, adolescent and mostly girls and like non-binary kids and trans kids are rewriting trauma stories. So like, Mm -hmm. it's very fascinating to me. So like, what does it mean that like a young person reads this really traumatic story and then they reimagine it as a poem? and genre switch or you know they they try to heal the character and they continue the story and they try to heal is a bit of a heavy word I I'm reticent to use that but you know try to give that character grace in a new way that maybe wasn't afforded to her in the novel and so it's really exciting to see the ways in which they're reimagining these trauma stories I'm still in the middle of it, which is maybe coming across in my in my chatter right now. But you're, you're exploring. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and it really does, I think, undermine claims that these topics are, you know, too heavy or too serious yeah. or too difficult for mm-hmm. a high school classroom yeah. or too, you know, too ugly to look at directly. Yeah. When you're like, no, actually, like yeah. adolescents really are grappling yeah. with these with these questions and really are taking up other texts and other stories as a tool yes. to grapple yeah. with these questions. Yeah. And it's a you know fan fiction writing is a very significant literacy practice. So, you know, mm. I when I was a teacher I used to offer students opportunities like you know you can write fan fiction as part of this project or something. And I didn't really know much about it at the time. And now if I were to go back, I'd kind of explicitly be like, let's look at these fan fiction pieces alongside this like published text and see, you know, what we make of it when we sort of do this intertextual work. So that that's really exciting. Right now, I, I did a lot of reading on Speak, that novel. And right now I'm exploring, um, if you know, 13 Reasons Why, which is, it was a novel that's been turned into a Netflix series. It's very controversial. And yeah. um, the, the next one, or one I'd like to explore at some point is Euphoria is really popular right now um, and very controversial. And there's tons of fan fiction writing coming out in response to that. And there's definitely like sexual violence in that text as well and so I'd be curious to see what young people are you know how they're reimagining it you know what different outcomes do they think are possible and it's such a useful counter like the thinking that you're that you're sort of modeling right now is such a useful counter to that kind of moralistic anxiety about like you know is this 
romanticizing Mm -hmm. suicide is this romanticizing drug use is this romanticizing you know these Mm -hmm. these dangerous yeah or risky or scary behaviors you know we see this a lot in responses to YA Mm -hmm. properties in responses to women's fiction in response right Mm -hmm. like that there's what it makes me think about is the idea of like well, why are women reading these novels in which female characters are are dominated, owned, mm-hmm. humiliated? Mm-hmm. Like what 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 work are these texts actually doing? Mm-hmm. And fan fiction is such a fruitful site of exposing the like complex ways people actually engage with and decode yeah. the texts that they are that they are exposed to. Like yeah. there's such a concrete reminder that people don't just read things and uncritically absorb the content of them. Absolutely. One of the most, what I'm finding right now is, so I've written a couple of papers that are in, you know, submitted, not come out yet on this project. In limbo. Yeah, in limbo, exactly. And what I've done as part of my ethics practice, because what's interesting about the research I'm doing now that's different than the past two projects is I don't need to get formal ethics clearance because it is a free, freely available data on the internet. But nevertheless, I am a feminist, so I still pay attention to ethics. And so following a number of scholars I really admire, I've been reaching out to these authors that I'm writing about and just saying, hey, like, this is me. I'm doing this project. Like, um, I'm quoting it because I think it's important. It's of pedagogical value. Please get in touch if you want me to credit you or if you have any questions or if you don't want me to include. Basically, just involving them in the decision process. And I've been getting emails the last several weeks from a number of different people who are like, I can't believe you read this. Like, it really means a lot that somebody read it and and thinks it's important enough to put in an academic paper. I've had people say like, you know, I wrote this when I was in high school, like seven years ago. And this book helped me get through a really tough time because I went through the same thing. So I'm actually having Mm -hmm. folks like sort of disclose to me a little bit or like share a little bit about the, you know, what went into that meaning making when they wrote that piece. And so that's been like a really wonderful thing I didn't anticipate out of this project is the dialogue with these artists. And I was nervous about it because you're always nervous that someone's going to be like, don't use my work. But that's not been the case at all. (laughs) No, yeah. People people are often really grateful to have others engaging with it. Yeah. Okay. So on the topic of disclosure, I want to talk about how you care for yourself (laughs) while working on really difficult topics that might involve strangers disclosing trauma to you over email. Yeah. I I started laughing when you asked this question because I was like, oh no, this is the hard question. I I don't know if I have like a beautiful finessed answer, but um, I can tell you that, I mean, the the place I'll start is I'm kind of used to it. So Mm -hmm. um, I have to, you know, that's not to say that just because you're used to it doesn't mean it doesn't weigh on you. But when I was a very young person in uh, undergrad, I volunteered at a feminist sexual assault center and I was a hotline crisis counselor for a couple of years. And so I actually got quite formal training in how to receive a disclosure and respond Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then when I became a teacher, as you can imagine, I got disclosures all the time from young people about various traumatic things that they were going through. And so I just feel, mm-hmm. I guess feeling practiced helps, mm. but I have to do some things to sort of counteract the heaviness. Sometimes I find the yeah. number one thing that helps me the most is talking to like critical feminist friends and just sort mm. of like 
saying, you know, like I, you know, I really heard some heavy stories, especially during my dissertation, when I got a lot of disclosures from the folks that I was working with. Sometimes I'd have back-to-back interviews, like four in a row of like an hour each. And then I go home and I'm just like, I need to just sort of have a cry and (laughs) talk to my friend and just say like, today was a lot. Um, So I'd say like, you know, community and friendship has been the number one source of like how I care for myself. So I guess other people are taking care of me. I don't know if I'm so much (laughs) taking care of myself. (laughs) It's an incredibly powerful form of self-care to reach out and ask for help from your community. And it's hard. Yeah. I say as somebody who's wildly bad at it. Oh man. But yeah, I'd say like reaching out to friends and like, you know, family and just talking to them. And, um, I don't know, just doing all the the nice things like, you know, going outside and walking and smelling the trees and just like literally taking time for some fresh air and to clear your mind and just all those simple things, I think. And you've got a puppy now to force you to go outside every day. And I talk to her constantly. She has no idea what I'm talking about, but I definitely like unload on her quite a bit. (laughs) Poor thing. She truly is going to be a therapy puppy. (laughs) Whether she likes it or not. Honestly, I think in yeah. these days, every animal, every pet is a therapy yes. pet, whether they know it or not. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Amber, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. If if folks listening to this right now want to follow along with your work and find out when those in limbo papers are out of limbo, how would they do so? Um, well, I am on Twitter. That's usually where I'm like, Hey, I like have like very sheepishly. I kind of hate doing it, but I'm like, Hey, I have this paper out. Just here's the Mm -hmm. link in case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stop apologizing. (laughs) Yeah. You're so right. Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) I have to uh, check Twitter. What is my handle? Um, or do we need that? You can just search Amber Moore and probably find me. No, we need your handle. Okay. So it's, what if they find the wrong Amber Moore? That's true. There are quite a few of us so it's at ms amber jm is my twitter handle ms amber jm yes great that's it yeah and so whenever i have a paper i'm just like here's the link (laughs) there's 50 free copies or whatever (laughs) you no longer sheepishly share it yeah you're right you lovingly share it oh that's yeah this is this free framing is very helpful but i am excited about this project so i think i will be excited when i share because The writing I'm encountering has been fulfilling me in ways that I didn't expect, and it's been really lovely. And I hope it fulfills other people, too. I'm sure it will. I look forward to reading it. Thank you. (laughs) 